Let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's word found in Psalm 105. O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works, glory ye in his holy name, and let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath with Isaac, and confirm the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee, Will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, He suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent him and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance, to bind the princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly. And made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant, and Aaron whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came diverse sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also in their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came, and the caterpillars, and that without number. And did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was no, not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light in the night. The Lord asked, and he, he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. They ran in dry places like 
a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord our God, we do pray for the blessing of thy spirit upon the preaching of your word tonight. Open our ears and our hearts, and we pray that by thy spirit you would give us understanding, that we might understand these wonderful truths that come from thy word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Before we begin, and we will refer to it later, I'd like for you to open the Blue Trinity Hymnal to page 676 there in chapter 7 as we look at the covenant of God with man and consider that topic this evening. As we come to this passage tonight, this is quite a lengthy passage, but it's perhaps um, one of the most beautiful passages But as we think of Psalm 105, and I was so encouraged this morning as I heard uh, Pastor Robbins preaching from Psalm 113 to see the connection between both of those and how the Lord oftentimes brings some of these thoughts to our remembrance. But when we think about history, some of you like history. I've always enjoyed history. I know when I lived in Scotland, I bought a book called The Lion in the North that that was a wonderful book. I still have that book that deals with the history of Scotland. And you read that book, and typically as we often do, we read history through the lens of the author. And yet, as we understand history, and as we understand the flow of history from whatever civilization or whatever culture it is, even when we understand the history of the church, It's not just, as Pastor Robin said this morning, it's not just facts, it's not just dates, it's not just memorabilia, but it is all events under God's sovereign purpose for His own praise and glory. And I think even as we come off of a disappointing election season, and as I saw some of the candidates, I just shook my head and think, well, it's all under God's purpose. I think there's a sense in which we just kind of cavalier say, okay, it's God's purpose. And yet we don't often think, what does that mean that God is working out his purpose in human history? Because ultimately it will culminate in God's purpose for his people. Because all of history is really, as we heard this morning, his story. It is God's purpose and all things that he ordains for his own glory. And so as we come to Psalm 105, we see here a wonderful psalm, a lengthy psalm. I'm not going to go through the entirety of it, but I think there's some wonderful things that we need to understand here. So I said last week, or two weeks ago in Psalm 104, here's the second triad of what is called the Hallelujah Psalms in Book 4. Psalm 104, 105, 
and 106. Those three form that triad that end with hallelujah. In the English translation, you'll see it there at the end of verse 45. It's praise ye the Lord. But the Hebrew word there is halle, which means praise the Lord. And so those three psalms are hallelujah psalms. And this is the first time in the Psalter we see this. But the next set of hallelujah psalms is in the next book, which is the last book, book 5, 111, 112, and 113. So these last two psalms in book 4 recall God's sovereign purpose for his covenant people. Both Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 recall the purpose of God in the life of Israel's history. So Psalm 105 deals with God's covenant faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness through Joseph, through Moses, and through the conquest under Joshua. As we come to Psalm 106, we see Israel's unfaithfulness. What a contrast. We see the covenant faithfulness of God, and yet we see the unfaithfulness of Israel. Yet as we look at this psalm, we see the wonderful working of God in the life of his people. In all of their trials, in all of their tribulations, in all of their difficulties, God is working out his purpose. And so as we look at Psalm 105, we could say that the theme of this particular psalm is that the Lord is glorified in his redeeming acts toward Israel. This is one of those psalms called the Hoda'ah psalms. That's a Hebrew word you've learned tonight. And those Hoda'ah psalms, along with Psalm 107, 118, and 136, in Hebrew mean, O give thanks. And so Psalm 105, 107, 118 and 136 are those psalms that begin with, O give thanks. And Psalm 105 and 106 are linked together because both of them have an opening call to give praise to Jehovah. But both Psalm 105 and 106 are quoted from David's psalm. In Chronicles 16.7. And as you think about that, Psalm 105 has no author listed there. And some would just say, well, no one knows. But we know that David wrote both Psalm 105 and 106 because they're linked to 1 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Now I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 16 as you understand what's happening here. There's no record of this in the book of the Kings. It's only in the Chronicles that we see this. But there in 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, it's quite a lengthy passage. But here David is celebrating the bringing up of the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. And so David quotes Psalm 105 
and part of 106 here in 1 Chronicles 16. And there is 1 Chronicles 16 begins. Verse 1, it says, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. So here is this box called the Ark of God. And David comes and places that Ark within the, the temple or within the, the tent or within that place where the presence of God would dwell. And so David pitched it there. And they offered before the Ark of God the burnt sacrifices and the peace offerings before God. And when David had made an end of offering and burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to every one a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. And he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Verse 5, Asaph, the chief, and next to him, Zechariah, Zael, Shamaramoth, Jehiel, and Mathaniah, and Elab, and Benaniah, and Obed, Edom, and Jael, with psalteries and with harps. But Asaph made a sound with cymbals. Benaiah also and Jaziel the priest with trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant. And then on that day, David delivered. Here we go. His first psalm to thank the Lord in the land of Asaph and his brethren. Here's the psalm that David delivers on that day. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. And so David is quoting Psalm 105 verses 1 through 15. And so we see there recorded in verses 8 through 22 of 1 Chronicles 16, the first 15 verses of Psalm 105. And then when we come next time to Psalm 106, verse 1 and verses 47 and 48, we see the remainder of 1 Chronicles 16 quoting that particular, those particular verses in Psalm 106. And so this is a festival occasion. David comes. He sets the ark in the, in the tent There in the ark, we see the the Lord God symbolized among his people. The ark was that place where God dwelt among his people. The ark also symbolized the atonement of sin at the mercy seat. And so as the people are worshiping before the ark, this is an occasion where the ark which represents the throne of God. And there the throne of God is joined with David's throne in Jerusalem. And there we see, as the ark is brought up, that God's kingship 
is merged with his messianic kingship. And here we see that the psalm speaks most gloriously of that greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here as you look at 1 Chronicles 16, you see the beautiful way in which David explains the wonderful workings of God and calls the people to glory in His name. And so as we draw our attention to Psalm 105, we know clearly that both 105 and 106 is David's psalm. It recalls the history of God's dealings, particularly with the patriarchs and the exodus of Israel as reasons for praise. And so here, in our first thing that we would like to look at tonight, in verses 1 through 8, there's an invitation that's given to give worship unto God. The only invitation that the church should give is the call to worship God. Here in verse 1, as he begins, he declares that we are to give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. And so there's this urgent call for the people of God to give thanks unto the Lord, to make His deeds known among the people. Here in verse 1, we see again that the mission enterprise of the church is rooted in the Psalter. That God calls His people to declare His glory, to declare His deeds among the nations. That's why we send missionaries to places like Italy. That's why we send missionaries even in those most difficult places. Because God wants His glory. God wants His deeds known among His people. Because in those nations, God indeed will call out His elect and bring them to faith in Christ. And so here's the urgent call for the people to give praise unto God. This God who has revealed Himself. This God who not only reveals Himself in history, but this God who reveals Himself in creation. This God who indeed is majestic and glorious. This God who calls the nations and summons the nations to worship Him. And so, as we look at this, we see this is more than just the history of Israel. This is more than just ancient history, but this is the history of God's people. He calls them to give praise. And then He calls them to sing unto Him with psalms, to talk of His wondrous works, or to declare His wondrous works. To declare those mighty deeds, to to declare those miraculous deeds. And when he says to talk of his wondrous works, he will give us examples of God's wonderful works. He will give us example of God's miracles. You know, you hear a lot today about miracles and, and some people believe they have miraculous powers. But God gave miraculous powers 
to men of old, to the prophets, to the apostles, to show forth in a very special way the glory of God. Those are not repeatable. Just like the parting of the Red Sea cannot be repeated. Just like Pentecost cannot be repeated. Those wonderful works that God did in the midst of his people tell of his goodness and of his mercy. And so as the people see God working in their midst, they, they give him praise. And so he calls the church to glory in his holy name. Let the heart of whom? Them that seek the Lord rejoice. So this is why it's important for the church to publicly worship the Lord God. Because in doing so, they are declaring his glory And they are seeking Him. And so the call to seek this God is a continual call. It's not just that public worship that we bring on the Lord's Day, but it is everything that we do in our lives that we are to seek Him, that we are to continually draw near to the Lord, to draw near in faithfulness, humility, to draw near in repentance, to draw near in prayer. To draw near to this God who indeed loves his own. And so the psalmist there says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. In other words, to seek his face all the time, not just on occasion. And then he begins there in verse 5. And says, remember his marvelous works. The word remember is used in the summary of God's law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And when the scripture uses that word remember, it means to recall, to give consideration to, to think about. And so here we are to remember, we are to think about, we are to dwell, we are to meditate upon those marvelous works that God has done, but particularly his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Oh, we oftentimes think of the faithfulness of God or we think of the mercies of God only in the sense of his grace. But oh, we see the judgments of God that come from his mouth. And so he calls... Whom? To remember his marvelous works. He calls the seed of Abraham his servant. The children of Jacob who are his chosen. And he says to the seed of Abraham, he says to the children of Jacob, he is the Lord our God. He's not just any God. He is Jehovah. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign God. He is the one who rules over the nations. He is the one who does all things for his own eternal purpose. But notice here, as the psalmist David begins to call the nations to to worship this God and to declare his mercies, he refers to the seed of Abraham. We see there in Galatians chapter 3 and 4 that those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ 
are Abraham's seed and children of the promise. And so this is not directed just to that ancient people that we just set aside and has nothing more to do with us. But it is the seed of Abraham. It is the children of Christ, the children of the promise, who are to remember the marvelous works that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We have children sitting here in our midst. And you have the privilege of being raised in the church. Your parents have given you that sign and seal of baptism which calls you to remember what God does in the life of His church. I, I am so thankful when we see a family that joins our congregation. We've had the Blocks join. Now we will have the Pearlies join to see the Lord adding to His church, bringing people in our midst. But we see the working of God, and we often don't even think about the working of God in the midst of His people. But He addresses the seed of Abraham, the children of promise. But he also addresses the children of Jacob as his chosen people. Not just those people as some suppose, oh, the Old Testament promises and all of that was just for Israel. This is for the seed of Abraham. This promise is for you and I. This promise to remember the marvelous works that God has done is for us. And then as we come to the end of this call to worship, and this is all within this context of the first eight verses, he says, Remember, He is the Lord our God, and He hath remembered. He tells the seed of Abraham, the children of Jacob, to remember His marvelous works. And now he tells us that God remembers his covenant. Isn't it ironic how the psalmist uses the word remember for the people of God, and yet how he shows us that God remembered his covenant forever. Of course, the first thing when we think about remember is forgetting something. Um, Sometimes you need your wife to remind you of things, you know. You need to do this and that and this and that. And it's usually a gentle prodding. But we are prone to forget. But God does not forget. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is a God who cannot forget. So how does God remember His covenant? Well, here the idea of remembering His covenant shows that God recalls His covenant that God shows forth His covenant, that God, as speaking at, like as man, does not forget. God cannot forget His covenant because that is the essence of who this God is. And so as we think of that covenant that He has made with us forever, notice there in verse Verse 8, it's a promise of a covenant. He hath remembered his covenant for how long? Forever. The word which he commanded 
unto a thousand generations. And so I draw your attention there to page 676 of our of the Trinity hymnal. As we consider the covenant that God makes with man. Children in the memorizing of the catechism know that because of the sin of Adam, that man comes into this world fallen, and that we are not left to perish in the state of our own sin and misery, as our shorter catechism question number 20 states. But it says that God, out of the mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life and did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. So children, you've memorized that question. But when you think about what does that mean, it means that God, by way of a covenant, by way of an arrangement that He made, would deliver sinners out of that state of sin and misery. And therein... Our chapter 7 of our confession, it tells us that the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures owe their obedience unto God as their creator, yet they can never drive any fruit from it or nor reward but by some voluntary condescension on the part of God, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. So there we see that God had to enter into a covenant, that God had to enter into a voluntary condescension on his part with human beings, because we, as children of Adam, we are, have such a great distance between us and God. And so this covenant that he makes is a covenant where he condescends to us. And so our confession goes on and says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein he promised life to Abraham and to his posterity upon the condition of what? Perfect and personal obedience. But when Adam and Eve fell in sin and all of creation fell in sin with them, as Romans 5 reminds us, they are incapable of that covenant. And so God made a second covenant called a covenant of grace where he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that he might be saved. And then he goes on and talks about how that covenant in section 5 is administered differently in the time of the law, in the time of the prophets, in the time of the gospel, time under the law. And so we see the administration of that covenant being played out in the life of Israel. And so this covenant that he speaks of, he remembers forever. The word that he commanded to a thousand generations. So that was not a covenant just for Abraham and his, his uh, 
immediate descendants. That was a covenant for every generation. That's why the psalmist speaks of a thousand generations as a time where the covenant extends even beyond Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's generations. So as we see the call to worship God, to give praise to this God because of his glorious works, verses 9 through 44 recall the mercies for which we are to give thanks. And so as he continues there giving thought on this covenant that he made with Abraham and this oath that he made unto Isaac, he shows that this covenant is, there is no void or expiration with it. God's covenant is eternal. God's covenant does not end. His mercies are what are foundational to his covenant. We need to understand this because we think of covenant, we don't think of it um, in the way that it was understood in the Old Testament because we don't relate by way of covenant. But when you think about the foundation of God's covenant is mercy. He is faithful to that covenant because he has given mercy to whom he will give mercy. And so this is the, the, the foundation of his covenant. That's why God is faithful to it. How could God be faithful to wicked and sinful people? Because he's granted mercy. He's granted mercy through the one, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he made that covenant with Abraham. So Abraham brought his children in that bloody sacrifice of circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, indicating that their lives were to be lived in obedience to God, that they belonged to him, and so they were to cut off that old life. They belonged to the Lord their God. And then that covenant was confirmed. God made that covenant with the patriarchs. And so we see there, particularly in verses 8 through 11, the promise of that covenant as the psalmist recalls the mercies of God. The covenant was made with the patriarchs. There in verses 12 through 15, we see the protection upon those patriarchs. As he, as he says that God would give his law to Israel as an everlasting covenant, and give them the land of Canaan. Verse 12 says, They were strangers, they were aliens, they lived in this foreign land, they were very few people. And he gathered them together, and so we see there in verses 12 and 13, that the Lord was gathering, even in the time of Abraham, a people for his own name's sake. And as he gathered them, from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he was building a people. He was creating one people that would be his people. And so we see the protection that God gave, particularly to the prophets. Verse 14, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no wrong. Here when, the, when uh, the psalmist talks about do not touch my anointed, he is not, what, he is not talking about what some TV evangelist often 
talk about. Don't touch God's anointed. Don't speak against Him. He's talking about those anointed prophets under the old administration. He's talking about those prophets whom God had anointed to bring the word of God to them. Do them no harm. They have been designated for that sacred and special office. And they have been empowered by the spirit of the living God. And so the word that they bring unto you is the word of God. So don't touch them. By way of application, it speaks of Christ, who is the greater prophet, who is our king and our priest, whom no man is to disobey. He is to give his allegiance unto this Christ. As he, we see the protection, but we see the care of God. We see the care of God as his people are going down to Egypt in verses 16 through 25. It's a lengthy passage, but we're just going to skim the surface. God's care of his people as they're going down to Egypt. He called for a famine, verse 16, upon the land. He break the whole staff of bread. Here in verses 16 through 25, we see the, the way in which God created a famine in the time of Joseph and how he sent Joseph into exile, how Joseph's brothers sought to kill him, how they cast him into a pit, how they left him to die, and how a caravan of Egyptians came along and delivered him and carried him off to Egypt. Now, this is how history works. This is not just one or two weeks out of Joseph's life. This is a long time. This is years that, that is going on. And yet, as Joseph is led away in that caravan into Egypt, and we see the trials of Joseph, we see that he was sold, that his feet were hurt with fetters, that the word of the Lord tried him, that the Lord brought um, affliction upon him. And verse 20 says, The king came and set him loose, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. Speaking of the king of Egypt. And then what did the king of Egypt do? He made Joseph ruler over his house and over all of his possessions. And even in the life of Joseph, we see the tender care that God has for his people. There in verse 23 and 25, it's, it's amazing. that Not only was Joseph led into Egypt, all of his affliction, and was appointed as a man over, over Pharaoh's house. We see that Israel was led into Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger, and he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. So here we see that the Lord brings Israel into Egypt, that Joseph protected his family in the time of famine. Those who who turned against him, his own family that rejected him. He saw this as something that was evil, but God meant it for good. And yet in that time of famine, he protected his own family. 
And yet we see here that the Lord sovereignly ruled over Israel's oppression. That the Lord used that for His own purpose. We see Israel brought into Egypt, but we see in verses 26 through 36 that God delivered Israel from Egypt. Just as He led them into to Egypt, He delivers them out of Egypt. And that is the beautiful story that we recall so often, how the Lord led His people. How did He do it? He did it through Moses. He did it through His servant, Moses, who said, Lord, I can't. I, I, I can hardly speak. I can't go and speak to these Egyptians. He says, you go down and tell them who I am. So Moses goes down and tells them that the Lord God, the I am sent me. And so Moses and Aaron go down in verse 27. Moses showed signs and wonders among the Egyptians in the land of Ham. God brought darkness in that land. He turned their water into blood. You know all of those plagues God brought upon them. But there as you come to verse 37, as He brought the plagues upon them, as He smote the firstborn in the land, He brought them out in the Exodus. And so God delivers them out. And we see in verses 37 and 38 a parallel to Exodus 12, verses 33 through 36. In verse 39, he talks about spreading a cloud. You see in Exodus 13, 21, a reference to that. You see in verse 40, um, Exodus 16, verse 41, Exodus 17. And there in verse 42, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant, in Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. And so as we see the history of Israel being played out, as we see the protection of God upon the patriarchs, as we see the protection and care of God upon His people, as they're being led into to Egypt, as they're being led out of Egypt, as we see the exodus and God bringing judgment upon Upon uh, the Egyptians. He's doing it all for the benefit of his people. And then in verses 43 through 45. We see that glorious conquest. Where God brings them into the land of Canaan. God brought his people forth. Verse 43. He brought his people forth out of Egypt. With joy. And with his, ch- and his chosen with gladness. And it says, as the Lord brought them out, he gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. And so as the Lord gathers the people that he has delivered out of Egypt, he gathers him in the land, he gathers them for the purpose of serving the Lord, he gathers them for the purpose of observing his commandments and his statutes and his laws. What a mighty work of God in the midst of His people. As you think and as you meditate upon all that God did in Israel's history, that is what calls the people to praise. That is what elicits praise. That is what fuels faith that generates our praise. 
History is always a testimony to God's faithfulness, to his covenant, and his power to keep his promises. As I look back on my own life, I am always amazed at how God had brought me out of a background of being steeped in superstition and unbelief, out of that into the promise of the gospel and how the Lord protected my life and how he led me each way, each step of the way through all of that. I can see the wonderful faithfulness of God in all of that. But this is what comforts God's people in life and in death. That God has promised to protect us. That he's promised to keep us. That he has promised to be faithful to us even unto death. We are indeed gracious people. Because we have a faithful God who shows to us his kindness and his mercy. God still keeps that same covenant of grace with us today. It was administered under the, under the time of the patriarchs in a different way. The sacraments of the old covenant are different from the sacraments of the new covenant. And yet it is the same covenant because Jesus Christ is of the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 And those who are joined to Christ by faith are also heirs of the promise and the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And so saints of God, we have a duty every Lord's Day to praise the Lord, to sing of His mercy, to sing of His grace, to sing of all of the wonderful things that the Lord has done for us. Indeed, he is mighty and worthy to be praised. And the psalmist ends on a beautiful note. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. What more can we give praise to our God for than to see his mighty acts as he led his people of old out, how he preserved them in the wilderness, how he prepared the way for Christ's coming, and how he prepares us as well. The Old Testament indeed is a history, but it's a history that gives comfort and consolation to God's people. I don't have time to go into all the particulars, but as you think of the life of Joseph, what greater trial could any man endure than to be rejected by your own brothers, to be sold into slavery? And yet God meant that for good. In all of our afflictions, we don't often know what God is doing in our lives. And we think at the time, it's like, you know, we, we, we kind of go in panic mode sometimes. And yet all of our trials, all of our tribulations, as we see in the life of Joseph, are for our encouragement and our comfort. To remind us that God is faithful in all seasons of life. Saints of God, God is faithful to us. I have heard this story a number of times from, from uh, Nick and from Al and from Ron. History of this congregation here. It, it, it still astonishes me that God brought you from Port Washington, maybe even somewhere else. I don't remember. The story is <laughs> hard, to, hard to keep in your mind. 
but how God has faithfully preserved this congregation. This is a testimony of his faithfulness. And so when we feel like, when we feel discouraged, and we do get discouraged sometimes, when we feel like, oh no, what's happened now? Or we feel like all of these things that happen in the life of of a congregation, we should stop and think, what is God doing in the midst of his people? What is God doing here because we are a witness and a testimony to those around us. But more importantly, we are a witness to the faithfulness of God in the life of his people. And so let us remember that as we go tonight, as we go into a new week, remembering whatever we face this week, God is faithful. Whatever trials and challenges we have, God is faithful. And he will be with us even unto death. May we pray. O Lord, our God, we do cry out to thee. Hallelujah. For indeed you have redeemed us. You have redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is clearly seen in the Old Testament. That he is the greater Moses. That he is the one who not only builds the house, but he is the owner of the house. And we thank you that he has built his house, that he has pitched his tent among men. And we rejoice today that he lives We rejoice today that he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we do long for that day when he will deliver us from this body of death. But more importantly, we long for the day of his return. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the faithfulness of our God, even in the midst of the valley of death in which we live. Lord, bless this word and encourage our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.